اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed in the name of Allah the most gracious ever merciful السلام علیکم ورحمت اللہ وبرکاتہو May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station You're listening to myself, Summer and I will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can uh, hit us up on our socials on X, formerly known as Twitter, and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, if you are familiar with the breakfast show here on Tuesday or on Voice of Islam uh, radio, you'll know that we usually speak about three main topics uh, after going through the, a roundup of the news. Um, but uh, when we do have a little uh, lengthier topics or, or, or topics which, uh, which need more of a discussion, um, then we usually focus on two. Um, and today we are doing the same. So today we're talking about two topics. The first one being, global conflicts of today are we dangerously close to another world war and that is the question for you as well if you do want to get involved uh, let us know what your thoughts are on this do you think we are close to another world war let us know what you think 0208-687-7878 is the number for you and like i said you can hit us up on our socials on x and on instagram at voice of islam uk um and in the second topic is in regards to organ donations a gift of life we'll be speaking to some experts in regards to both of these topics as well uh, let us know what you think what your thoughts are remember i always say this as well This is your radio station and we do love for you to get involved. So do pick up the phone and give us a call. Voice your opinion on your radio station. Like I said, the questions for you today are, are we dangerously close to another world war? And also your thoughts on organ donation. Um, but before we get into that, uh, we are going to be speaking about the news. We'll be just I'll, I'll just touch on the weather as well, actually. We usually do start with um, a little discussion of, uh, on, on the weather. So today, um, as you can see, there's mist and fog in the southeast to start the day. The north, northwest will see blustery showers, wintry over high ground. Cloud and spells of rain will move into the south during the afternoon. Um, and then for tonight, we will see that uh, clouds will clear the south and the east as it turns dry. However, mist and fog could redevelop in the early hours. To the north and west, cloud will build, bringing rain for some by dawn. Um, and then if we look at tomorrow, we can see that clouds will keep spreading eastwards, turning overcast by the afternoon. A band of showery rain will also gradually spread eastwards, falling um, increasingly heavy uh, in the north, breezy and mild. And then the outlook uh, from Thursday to Saturday is that it's going to be uh, wet and windy on Thursday with showers in the north, falling wintry on some hills and spells of rain in the south. Staying generally mild, chillier on Friday and staying unsettled with showers or spells of rain for most um, 
Wintry in the north and west. Windy to the south, Saturday will turn drier with sunny spells developing for many, but wintry showers will remain in the north. So as you can see, um, just like the last couple of days as well, last two or three days, um, it is uh, we can see the wintry spells um, and the winds as well. So uh, so do make sure that you still have your, your beanies and your scarves and, and even your brollies, your umbrellas um, at, at hand as well. It's not that time of the year yet uh, in which you are to to pack them away or or keep them stored um, somewhere, wherever you keep them stored. Um, But uh, but yeah, like I said, it is uh, still time for you to be using uh, your your raincoats as well. Newspaper headlines. So hunt tax cuts warning and from friend to traitor. So we can see. Several of uh, several of today's papers have started trailing next week's budget. The Guardian reports that Jeremy Hunt's financial planning has been described as dubious, quote unquote, and lacks credi- uh, credibility by a leading economic think tank, which warns that the chancellor could uh, should, chancellor should not announce tax cuts in the budget if he is unable to detail how they will be funded. The paper's lead story features the warning from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which calculated that Mr. Hunt would need to find £35 billion of cuts from already threadbare public services, quote-unquote. The I also leads with a story about tax cuts. The paper says Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is hoping to announce a 2p cut in personal taxes. A move, the paper says, comes as Mr Hunt and the Prime Minister face pressure from other Conservative MPs. Uh, The continuing row, uh, row stemming from uh, comments made by Conservative MP Lee Anderson who suggested that London uh, Mayor Sadiq Khan was controlled by Islamists, leads today's Times. The paper reports on Rishi Sunak declaring he is living proof, quote-unquote, that Britain is not a racist country and the Prime Minister warning that uh, politicians have an obligation to be careful, quote-unquote, and uh, not unnecessarily inflame tensions after Mr Anderson was accused of stoking anti-Muslim hate. The Daily Express, meanwhile, reports that Red Wall Tories are calling for Lee Anderson's suspension to be lifted. Mr Anderson, the former deputy chairman of the party, was suspended on Saturday. The paper goes on to say that some Tory MPs want Mr Anderson back before a general election, as he is incredibly popular, quote-unquote. Friends and traitors, quote-unquote, it's a splash headline for The Sun, which reports that Friends star Courtney Cox is being lined up, quote-unquote, as the first signing for a celebrity spin-off of popular BBC TV show The Traitors. A mock-up image of the actress in the iconic black robe worn on the programme accompanies the story, which reports comments uh, from a TV insider that Cox would be a real coup if signed, quote-unquote. Um, the Daily Mirror uh, reports uh, headlines. Uh, the Daily Mirror headlines on its uh, own investigation into this extortion, uh, quote unquote, scam, in which uh, they say children are being blackmailed over naked photos. The paper reports uh, on the story of a 16-year-old boy who was reportedly caught up in the scam and ultimately took his own life. Uh, very, very sad news indeed. 
The Daily Telegraph leads with the headline, and I quote, Army wives force MOD U-turn over housing. The paper reports that a plan by the Ministry of Defence to change the way army accommodation is allocated has been shelved amid a backlash from military wives, quote-unquote. The proposal would have allocated housing by the number of children or a serviceman of all women has rather than their rank and was paused by Defence Secretary Grant Shapps after growing anger, quote-unquote, over the scheme, the story adds. Uh, the story of Scarlett Bake makes the front page of Metro. Blake, who was jailed for 24 years for the murder of George Martin Carreno in 2021, is labelled by the paper as a cat sadist, quote-unquote, after she was jailed for live-streaming herself killing a cat. The judge said a Netflix show about killing cats played a part, quote-unquote, in the murderous plan, the story adds. Um... The Financial Times has uh, carried out an analysis of OECD data for its lead story, which finds that a global drop in house prices that hit advanced economies has largely petered out, quote-unquote. It reports that economists uh, predict that the deepest property downturn in a decade has hit a turning point, point, quote-unquote. And um, in the Daily Star, a boffin, quote-unquote, reveals to the paper that uh, we would serenade our food to improving uh, to improve well-being. Sing for your supper, quote-unquote, the front page says. So there, there's quite a bit of uh, interesting news um, on today's uh, papers. Uh, just one of the the ones that we just read, the the, the story of Scarlett Blake, um, which which made the front page on uh, on Metro, which uh, which says that uh, Blake, who was jailed um, for 24 years for the murder of George Martin Carreno in 2021, uh, lay, being labelled as a cat sadist as well. Um, for 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 live streaming herself killing a cat, uh, and and the judge also said, like I mentioned earlier as well, that the the Netflix show about killing cats played a part in the murderer's plan um, as well, and it just it just goes to show that anything and everything that we consume. Uh, whether it be by reading or watching the news, whether it be by watching, uh, be, being on social media, whether it be by um, sitting in front of the television and uh, watching documentaries, series, shows, comedies, whatever. Whatever we consume, it does have a, a psychological effect on us. It, it may be very subtle or it may not be as well. And that is why it's, it is so important that we keep ourselves away from harmful things that we see within the society. And also, it should be a reminder for us as well to always keep good company as well. The Holy Quran teaches us that that stay amongst the company of righteous people, of truthful people. And you'll know, and and you'll, you, I mean, we've always heard this growing up that you are, you are, you're known by the company that you keep, right? If, uh, if, uh, and uh, uh, very, um, uh, the, the elders within the community as well, with the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, they always say that you're, you, you, if you want to know 
who someone or what someone is like then you can do so by by just having uh by taking a a picture of uh, of uh, of his or her, uh, her the company that they keep the friends uh, in school in in the workplace wherever it might be if you you're, you're known by the company that you keep and it's so if you keep uh ill or evil company if you have bad friends then obviously you will be inclined to doing those bad things and and being in being indulged in those bad habits that those friends have but if you keep the company of the righteous then you will notice that that you also will adopt those righteous ways as well you also will be doing those acts of kindness that they do you'll be doing those charitable acts that they do as well and so it is it is essential that we always keep ourselves in healthy and positive atmospheres this can be um and uh, obviously we're talking about a friendship right now but it's not just limited to that i i i started this conversation or this discussion by uh, by the netflix uh, show uh, of um, uh, of uh, of killing a cat uh, um Sorry, what is it called? I'm just looking for 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 the name. Um uh the 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 Netflix show of uh, of of killing cats. Yes. Um and uh, and it, it it just goes to show that anything that we consume, anything that we watch, anything that we read, it does play a part on our mental selves as well. Um if you if you watch something being done, you might at, at first you might hate that thing, whatever it might be. It might be um it, it might be for instance the, the killing of cats like the example over here it might be about eating a particular thing it might be about uh, partaking in a certain act you might hate it at first but because you see it so often it might be that uh, social media has uh, has made it a fashionable thing uh, or it might be that uh, it's a trending thing um, on social media or or that all of the stars so called stars i should say are, are indulging in that thing as well whatever it might be whenever you see that thing and you see it on a regular basis you sort of become immune to it and that hate that you once had for that thing will slowly and gradually start to fade away and when it does fade away then you will notice that you might also indulge within that act as well whether it's the eating of a particular thing or whether it's the the wearing of a, t- a certain type of clothing or whether it's the act of doing a particular thing you will you will you will see that your the hatred that you once had for that thing has has slowly and gradually sort of lifted away or faded away and you have become more immune or more acceptable to the act of doing that particular thing and that is a very dangerous thing to say the least and if we are not careful and if we are not mindful of the things that we watch the things that we read the things that we uh, indulge in then we will also be uh, a part of this as well and uh, god forbid and that is why it's like i said it's so essential that we are always mindful of our atmosphere of our friendship uh, groups of uh, the people that we surround ourselves with in the workplace in college and universities wherever we may be 
Um, and uh, and with that, uh, we'll be just just a quick another uh, a roundup uh, of a few of the maybe uh, newspapers that we've uh, that we've missed uh, before moving on to our first segment for the day. Get him back, quote unquote, is the headline in the Daily Express, which says Conservative MPs are rallying around. Excuse me, Lee Anderson, de- demanding his suspension is lifted. Uh, it reports that uh, party whips have been besieged with support for him, with uh, some saying he must be reinstated before the election because of his incredible popularity, uh, quote-unquote, with voters. According to the Times, some of uh, some uh, Tory MPs believe his suspension will spark a backlash from the party's supporters, despite Rishi Sunak's attempt, uh, attempts to close down the row, quote-unquote. The Guardian has published WhatsApp messages from members of one grassroots conservative group which describe the Prime Minister as a snake who is weak and feeble, quote-unquote. According to the I, the Chancellor has six days to find tax cuts to save Tory MPs, quote-unquote. It says Jeremy Hunt is still clinging to hope that can uh, that he can cut 2p off personal taxes in the budget next week without having to reduce spending. The Times reports he is considering cutting national insurance by one percentage point and introducing a new levy on vaping. The Daily Mail reports warnings from the Commons Home Affairs Committee that pro-Palestinian marches are placing unsustainable, quote-unquote, pressure on policing resources. The headline in The Sun is Hate Demos Stop uh, Cops Doing Duty, quote-unquote. In its leader column, it says the protests are crippling the police, quote-unquote. But the Daily Mirror's Darren Lewis says that anti-war protest is is as old as it is legitimate, quote-unquote. An investigation by the Mirror has found that the number of children being blackmailed over naked photographs has been risen by 390% in two years. Experts uh, tell the paper that up to 100 children a day are falling victim to what they call sextortion scams. Um, it highlights the story of one 16-year-old victim who, who actually took his own life after receiving threats like we mentioned earlier as well. The Daily Telegraph leads with what uh, it calls the government's U-turn on army housing. Um, the Financial Times describes uh, Hungary's decision to ratify Sweden's bid to join NATO as one of the biggest geopolitical consequences, quote-unquote, of the invasion of Ukraine. It says the accessions of both Sweden and Finland give the alliance control of almost the entire Baltic Sea, quote-unquote, doubling the length of its border with Russia. In an interview with The Guardian, the Shadow Education Secretary Bridget Philipson sets out what the paper calls Labour, Labour's plan to battle misogyny in schools, quote-unquote. She says the she would uh, help to train young male mentors uh, to provide a powerful counterbalance, quote-unquote, to social media influencers, such as Andrew Tate, a self-proclaimed misogynist. And lastly, the uh, male reacts to the news that the age rating 
for the 1964 Disney classic Mary Poppins has been raised from U to PG because it features a colonial term used by white Europeans in South Africa. The uh, paper proclaims that uh, the move has upstaged what it considers the only jarring element of the film, quote-unquote. Dick Van Dyke's notorious assault on the Cockney accent, quote-unquote. That was the roundup of the news. Uh, We're going to be taking a very short break, and once we do come back, we are going to be speaking about our first main topic. Remember, um, the topics for you today are global conflicts of today. Are we dangerously close to another world war? That is the question for you. Let us know what you think, what your thoughts are on this. Um, I'm sure many of uh, you will have uh, um, opinions, uh, very strong opinions uh, for that matter in regards uh, to this topic. So so do pick up the phone and give us a call. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. Um, but if you are busy, you don't have uh, too much time and if you if you just want to, to voice your opinion, then uh, of course you can do so on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter and on Instagram at Voice Office Live. UK. Um, after speaking about the conflicts, the global conflicts of today, we're going to be speaking about a gift of life as well. So organ donations is the second topic. Let us know what you think in that regard as well. Don't go anywhere and join us after the very short break. Allah. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, He had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. It was for me that God caused the solar and lunar eclipses in heaven during the month of Ramadan and caused numerous other signs to be manifested on earth. And thus, in accordance with divine practice, my truth was conclusively established. God, in whose hand rests my life, is my witness that if you cleanse your hearts and seek other signs from God, the Omnipotent One is capable of showing a sign according to His own will and power, without being subject 
to any of your importunities. And I am sure that if you demand a sign from me, with a genuine desire to repent, and promise earnestly before God that if an extraordinary sign appears which is beyond human power, you will shed all this rancour and enmity, and purely for the sake of winning God's pleasure, will enter into the pledge of bet with me, then God, being so kind and merciful, will certainly show you some sign. However, it is not within my power to fix a period of two or three days for showing a sign, or to do exactly as you wish. It is the prerogative of God to choose the time. The giver of life, the one who gives life to whoever he wills. How can you disbelieve in Allah? When you were without life, he gave you life. And then he will cause you to die, then restore you to life. And then to him shall you be made to return. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam a radio station. Just a quick time check for you. It is 34 minutes past seven. Um, and we are now going to be going straight into our first main topic global conflicts of today. Are we dangerously close? To another world war. Let us know what you think in this regard. Um, like I said before the break as well, I'm sure you have um, a very strong opinion about this as well. Uh, so do pick up the phone, give us a call. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. Um, and of course, uh, you can hit us up on our socials on X and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, just getting straight uh, into to this topic around the world, of course, uh, we can see that many violent conflicts are taking place. There's uh, the Geneva Academy of Humanitarian Law, um, and they've identified 45 conflicts taking place in the Middle East and Africa, with 21 in Asia and seven in Europe. To add to this, many powers accuse NATO and the UN of not upholding the principles by which they were founded and so creating more instability and uncertainty. With so much chaos being witnessed in our present times, are we creeping towards a third world war? 
Let me know what you think in this regard. Um, we're going to be speaking about some some different conflicts and violence, uh, which is violence and wars which are taking place in each continent of the region um, of of the world as well. We'll be talking about what uh, Islam teaches in this regard, what the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is doing uh, in this regard as well, um, and uh, and of course, like I said, we always want to hear from you as well. This is your radio station, and so like I always say, we would love for you you to get involved and voice your opinion so do pick up the phone and give us a call zero to zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you um uh, we have uh, do we do have with us on the line our first guest for the sh- show professor natasha lynchstead uh, who's a professor of government at the university of essex who studies author- uh, author- authoritarian regimes democratic backsliding uh, backsliding failed states conflict and violent non-state actors as well assalamualaikum Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're very welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, as you've heard, we're, we're talking about a very uh, important topic, uh, something which uh, is is of, of great importance to all of us, despite uh, wherever we, we may live, uh, whether it's in Europe, Africa, Asia, the US, you name it. Um, the, the first question that I wanted to ask you in this regard is what are some of the key factors that contribute to the escalation of conflicts between nations? Well, if honestly, interstate war has become less and less common, uh, and, and that's since since the Cold War ended when there were some of these proxy wars. Um, but, but also if we look at the post-World War II system, uh, there's been a huge rise in, in civil wars compared to interstate wars. But Conflicts that happen between countries, usually it is over territory. There is some discrepancy over what one country thinks is its territory versus another country. Uh, Sometimes it's over resources, but the most intractable conflicts, the ones that are really hard to to come up with some kind of solution for, are often because uh, there there just is not agreement about the borders. And there may be people of different ethnicities or let's just say of the same ethnicity that cross over one particular border, uh, and and that can lead to to tensions. Uh, and then, of course, when more countries get involved in a conflict, when conflicts become internationalized, they become much more violent, uh, and and they last a lot longer. Um, so I would argue that the main sources are these conflicts over borders and conflicts over resources. And particular, if a conflict involves a particular type of resource, like an illegal resource, like drugs these conflicts could go on for decades. Mm-hmm. And in the context of uh, current global affairs, how do you perceive the role of nuclear weapons in shaping the potential of a third world war? So at the moment, I would say that we have to be cautiously optimistic that nuclear deterrence will hold. The idea that because great powers, powerful nations do have nuclear weapons, but also second strike capabilities, that it's just not in our interest to use nuclear weapons and we know of the destruction. Uh, That doesn't mean that I think that there's no chance of them being used, but I think it's less likely. Mm -hmm. I do think that countries are trying to pursue nuclear weapons uh, to appease the military and the elites within their own countries and to try to increase their bargaining power on the international stage. But, of course, that makes it very worrisome 
for the international community as we have more and more countries armed with nuclear weapons, or at least trying to seek nuclear weapons. Hmm. And I mean, we we've seen what happened uh, in Japan as well. Do, is that maybe not a deterrent um, to, to 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 nations that if if they were to use nuclear weapons, then it's not just about wiping out a a particular place or or, or, or even a country, but rather that can be basically the whole world, isn't it? Which gets engulfed in that. Yeah, I think I think the the threat that uh, that comes from nuclear weapons, of course, is so real because we've seen the destruction uh, in Japan, in Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Mm. Uh, I, I would like to point out that the death tolls have been much higher just due to small arms, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think the threat of nuclear weapons is far far less than than other threats that we need to cooperate on, like climate change. Uh, for example, and uh, and diseases, um, but of course the the images of what happened there, the hor- horrendous destruction um, and the impact that it had on the communities there, is is something we want to avoid at all costs. Yeah, no, no definitely, and and it's, because it's not even just uh, the people who get hit uh, by it or, or, or which are affected, but rather it's generations after that as well, isn't it? Uh, which is which is an even more worrisome uh, uh, affair as well. Um, as a scholar focused on peacemaking, how would you respond to critics or individuals who argue that the current state of international relations makes a third world war world war inevitable? So I don't think third world war is is likely in the way it was played out like in World War One or World War Two. Mm-hmm. And World War Two, you had a death toll. You include all the civilians that died. That was 75 million people. And World War One, 20 million people, including civilians. I don't think we're ever going to see anything like that. Now, during the Cold War, we, of course, had proxy wars of great powers that were being involved in that. And we have international conflicts like in like in Syria became internationalized, like in Yemen um, <clears throat> and to some extent in, in Ukraine. Um but I think then if we were to answer your question about what are the mechanisms to, to resolve peace, we don't have great mechanisms to, <clears throat> to resolve the issues, these issues, and lead to peace. We are just banking on the fact that many countries are internationally, economically interdependent, that we have institutions to set up free trade and to help us communicate and um, improve transparency amongst one another. And there are third-party states that can help negotiate when when there are conflicts. Uh, But a lot of these international institutions, I'm I'm speaking more specifically of the UN, which which I believe in is very necessary, but it doesn't have the the teeth, the power to deter conflict and to enforce peacemaking um, that effectively. Now, that's not to say that it, it doesn't do anything. I think it actually does a lot. But it's very difficult because at the end of the day, the powerful countries that are involved in these conflicts that are critical to peacemaking need to want peace. And if they don't, it's difficult for other enforcement agencies to do that. Most certainly. Most certainly. I mean, uh, His Holiness, the, the current head of the Worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim Community, Miela Strenthan Izzandi, he always um, addresses this issue as well. And he always speaks about true justice. And it's not just about looking out for whatever 
specific countries want for themselves, but rather it's looking at the the bigger picture. It's looking about how we can ensure um, and instill peace within the society that we live in. Um, and if we don't do that, then 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 very very little can be can be achieved. Obviously, we can we can all gain um, uh, more military and more money and more so many other things as well. But th- that is, I mean, what's the cost of all of that, isn't it? We we need to look at what true justice is. We need to look at peace and and look out for for what other people or nations or countries need as well. We are living in a global village, um, and so it's essential for us to look out just, not just for our own rights, but the rights of our neighbours and our neighbouring countries as well. Um, Professor uh, Natasha Lynch said, uh, thank you so much for, for, for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight um, into this, this uh, extremely important topic. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. Uh, that was Professor Lindstedt, um, who is a professor of government at the University of Essex, who studies uh, author- authoritarian regimes, democratic backsliding, failed states, um, conflict and violent non-state actors as well. We're going to be going straight to our next guest before we talk about uh, the different conflicts which are happening um, around the world in different regions and continents uh, of the world as well. Um, uh, we do have with us on the line Dr. Majbrat Likbowen, uh, who works as a senior lecturer in reconciliation and peace building, where she leads a master program on reconciliation and peace building. Uh, she's an expert in peace building and accountability for international criminal law. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning, and thank you so much for having me this you're, morning. You're very welcome, and thank you for for being with us. Um, uh, we're we're talking about a very interesting and very important topic as well, uh, paramount for 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 all of us, despite uh, uh, whichever region we may be living in. Um, from your perspective, what are some of the major global conflicts happening today that have the potential to escalate into a wider scale global conflict? Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's a, a really relevant question at the moment. I think first we need to just question the way we use words as well. I think we've got to be really careful about what wars we designate world wars, mm-hmm. uh, and that it doesn't just include uh, wars where we have the Europe, where we have European states and and the US involved, because the way we label violent conflict really also affects how much attention we pay to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are still people dying in many other parts of the world, including, for example, Democratic Republic of Congo at the moment and Ethiopia. Uh, and Syria and um, places that we don't hear so much about. So we've got to be a little bit careful with that. But perhaps it's more relevant than to talk about the situations where we have major powers such as the US and Russia and where they're becoming actively involved in, in opposite sides. And I think there's, I mean, the most obvious one we need to keep an eye on at the moment is obviously the one between Ukraine and Russia. And that's really mainly because of the involvement of NATO in that. Um, we have, NATO has one of its basic principles is what is called the collective defense it's Article 5 of its treaty, and it basically means that if one of the states in NATO is, is uh, attacked, then that's seen as an attack on everybody, uh, on all the states involved in NATO. So basically, there are a couple of scenarios that meant that, that would mean that NATO would be, become involved in this, in, more involved than it already is, because at the moment it is, there are obviously already a lot of countries uh, sending weapons to, to Ukraine. But one of the things that could happen, for example, is if Ukraine joins NATO, then that would mean that it would be seen as an attack on everybody. There's also the 
the the option really that uh, Russia attacks one of the of the current members of NATO. That could be states such as Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania that used to belong to the Soviet Union. So they might, for historical reasons, want that feel that they want their territory back. Or it could be another NATO country that they decide um, to attack because of the contributions that they're con- that they're doing at the moment to the war. So that's something we need to be really involved careful about um, um, and wary of. Um, so there is really the chance that NATO might be involved in this war. Um, and and, and if, they, if that happens, so say, for example, if, if, if countries like the UK, the US, France and Germany, they're all NATO members, became involved, then there's obviously also the chance that some Russian allies, such as North Korea and China, might get involved as well. So that is definitely a situation we need to be really wary of. I'd say there are two others that we need to keep an eye on that are still not turning into, into wars where, where there has major powers, but that has the capacity to do so. <clears throat> the first one is, is, is Israel-Palestine, where we are seeing neighboring countries becoming more and more involved, and this could escalate further. So countries like Lebanon, for example, have already been uh, bombed. Um, there's obviously also quite recently we've had the UK and the US involved in bombing Yemen, and this could escalate as well. So there could be more regional status as Iran could also become involved, which yeah. would escalated situation. I'd say the final one is Taiwan. It's not one we hear so much about, but um, if China decided that Taiwan was becoming a bit too independent, um, then there is a chance that China might invade Taiwan. And I think if that was the case, Japan and, and the US might become involved as well. So that's another situation really that could escalate. Yeah, yeah, no, no, very true. Um, when it comes to diplomacy and international cooperation, what role does this play in preventing the escalation of conflicts and maintaining international peace? Yeah, so like your, your previous speech, speaker, I think that the UN has played a really important role since uh, the Second World War mm-hmm. um, in, in maintaining uh, international peace and security. So they have, for example, had many different peacekeeping missions around the world. And even though they haven't all been equally successful, I mean, most of them have still managed to reduce violence significantly. Uh, so I think that that is uh, one of the things that has worked. Um, there, I would also here highlight some of the regional organizations that have played an important role. So the European Union, the African Union, and, the, and organizations such as the Organizations for Security and Cooperation in Europe, also known as the OC, OSCE. They have all played a really important role in preventing violent conflict in their particular areas as well. And the way that they've done that really is, is, for example, to monitor the security situation, to facilitate dialogue and mediation, to have people coming together, basically state leaders coming together. Uh, they've done capacity building, confidence building, um, all really important tools that has helped prevent conflict so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also see that um, some of that is currently under threat. So ideas around diplomacy and international cooperations are really under threat at the moment as well. And there are a couple of reasons for that, or a couple of kind of signs for that, really. I think, first of all, we have um, a wave of right-wing populist governments that are acting more in their own self-interest, really, than they are, and they are showing very little consideration for diplomacy and international cooperation. So we can, we have, for example, seen uh, Donald Trump in the U.S. Uh, paying a lot less attention or being a lot less uh, interested in diplomacy and international cooperation. We're also currently seeing states like Israel, for example, we see the Israel government, uh, that doesn't seem to really listen to even the U.S., which you know traditionally has been some of the major powers when they have they've had an influence on different countries uh, and have been able to uh, de-escalate situations. At the moment, that doesn't seem to be the case. So, 
I think what's what's important and what's what's dangerous at the moment is uh, that some of these right-wing populist governments cling on to power. So we've seen that in places like Brazil as well. We've seen Bolsonaro, for example, not uh, not accepting that he lost the uh, the elections. Mm. We're also seeing a normalization of of policies that would have really beforehand be considered quite right-wing policies. So ideas around you know that we shouldn't be cooperating with each other, that we shouldn't support governments like the UN and, and, and NATO as well. Um, I think another important thing at the moment is we're also seeing an erosion of international law. So we're seeing there is, for example, as we are all well aware, for example, in Gaza and me, both in Gaza and Myanmar, there has been significant violations of the Genocide Convention, one of the basic human rights treaties that were one of the basic and, and foundational treaties for the UN, really. Hmm. We've also seen significant violations of the Convention of the Right of the Child in many places, including Gaza at the moment. I think there's we have to all be greatly concerned about how little consideration we play we are, we are currently paying to the lives of, of innocent children really and and most importantly for that also well, more importantly for that also really the impact that's going to have on future generations um and finally i think we're also seeing uh, in this context an erosion of the refugee convention we're seeing that here in the uk as well um we are not we are not um all well, it, well in the future it looks like we're not going to be uh, people who are fleeing war are not going to be able to apply for asylum. Um, and we are seeing that we are setting up schemes for some people and not for others. So, for example, we have set up schemes for Ukrainians, we've set up for some for Afghans and Syrians, but we haven't really done anything to help all the people that are now involved in, in the violence in places like Palestine, Sudan, and, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I think that's that's all very, very in tendencies at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but most certainly, most certainly. Um, when we're talking about uh, war and things of that sort, then the, the the main reason for that is because because of something that we all want, and that is peace, right? And 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 so, what our listeners, I'm sure, want to know from you as well would be that what steps can be taken to actually promote peace and to prevent the outbreak of of another world war what do you think so i think there i think there are sort of well i mean there's lots of things we can do there's lots of work, work ahead of us but i yeah. think there are sort of three things that i think are important at the moment really i think one is i mean one of the reasons why we haven't seen the un being involved uh, in 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 many of the the recent conflicts around the world and 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 the violence and trying to do something about it is really because um, we have the United Nations Security Council that are the ones that make the decisions in the end. Um, and there are co- a couple of countries there that have uh, the powers to veto any kind of decision. So we've seen, for example, whenever there's a, a conflict where there are powers that are uh, sitting on the Security Council with the right to veto, uh, that kind of rules out the using the UN. So, for example, at the moment in Ukraine, we have, you know, we have the US on one side and we have Russia on the other side. And Russia will basically veto anything that comes through around UN. Uh, the U.S. has recently done the same uh, in, the, in the conflict between Israel and, and Gaza. So for me, reforming the U.N. Security Council and making it more democratic to say that the, no country should have the right to veto uh, something that the majority of countries uh, think is necessary, uh, I think would be a very important step. And this is not something that's going to happen overnight, but I think this is something we need to really think about how that can be done. I also think we need to strengthen international law. So we have to, there has to be more accountability for violations of international criminal law. Uh, and at the moment, it looks like the International Criminal Court is still our best option for that. That was set up um, about a bit more than 20 years ago um, with the idea to really make sure that people who do violate international 
criminal law are also held accountable for that. So then we simply need to get we need to get to the point where it is no longer um, where it's no longer risk free to mm. attack another country and to and to commit um, atrocities, mass atrocities. So thinking about how we can do that, I think, is really important. And finally, arms control is really important as well. Um, I mean, it is it is it's scary to think that, for example, in 2022. Uh, the UK arms sales uh, was record was and was a new record really with 8.5 billion pounds uh, worth 8.5 billion pounds. Wow. So we need to really drastically reduce the arms sales. We need to think carefully about who we are who we are selling arms to, yeah. and also really remind ourselves that even if we are selling arms to 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 people we think are friends at the moment, that they that those weapons are still in many cases ending up on the other on the other side and that they're also being reproduced i mean you see weapons being used in many different violent conflicts so reducing the arms sale i think is really 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 important as well i think on a more personal level there are a few things you can do as well you can think carefully about who you're going to vote for in the next general election you can participate in demonstrations they are all over the country at the moment um, and I think in terms of the arms sale, you can also really think about where you are investing your money. So what kind of banks are you using? Some of them are, are a lot more ethical than others. Uh, what, what kind of companies are you supporting as well? Are any of them related to arms sale? Um, and then we can hopefully influence decisions for the future in that way as well. Most well, certainly. I mean, it, it, is, it is all about uh, being conscious and, and being aware of uh, of uh, what uh, of what we as individuals can do to really make a difference as well and it's uh, it's it's a uh, even i mean his holiness always teaches us this as well that when uh, on a or however small our circle may be we may, it may just be limited to a few people at our workplace or our family or our friends um we need to um have this tr- sense of true justice and this this peace and this looking out for one another not just looking out for myself all the time but looking out for the people around me and when when you extrapolate that and when you when you t- think think about that on a global level you're not just limited to the people at your workplace or the or, or your the people who are or, uh, your neighbors but rather those neighbors go to those neighboring cities and those neighboring cities can go to neighboring countries and then neighboring continents as well i mean we all know that we're living in a global village and anything that we do has a knock-on effect on people around us it might be from a, it, it might have an effect on people in a different country Country, but it will have an effect on someone and that is why it's so essential that we're mindful of the things that we do um and 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 always look about try to find true justice not just limiting it to to what we want but uh, but looking out for others as well um thank you uh, it was a pleasure uh, speaking with you um uh, dr bowen and 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 for you to share your insight uh, with our listeners as well uh, excellent interview and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well peace be upon you thank you and you too thank you bye 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 Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Dr. Majbrat Lick Bowen, uh, who works as a senior lecturer in reconciliation and peace building, where she leads a master program on these as well. And she's an expert in uh, peace building and accountability for international criminal law as well. Um, we are uh, shortly just going to, going to be going to our uh, a short break as well with the 8 o'clock news. Um, but before we do so, just a quick reminder for you that we are talking uh, about this topic of uh, 
um, of of uh, of how we can uh, try to make peace as well. Um, the problems that we're seeing within the world today. Um, are we dangerously close to another world war? That is the question that we're asking. So do pick up the phone and voice your opinion in this regard as well. Don't go anywhere. And here is the news. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Summer. Just a quick time check for you. It is Tuesday, the 27th of February, two minutes past eight. Um, and we are continuing our discussion on the conflicts, the global conflicts of today. Um, and the question for you is, are we progressing towards another world war? If you are just tuning in, uh, we've already spoken to two uh, esteemed guests in this regard as well. Um, we will speak, we'll be speaking to another shortly. And then uh, in about 20 minutes or so, we'll be speaking about our next topic, which is in regards to organ donations, a gift of life. So do let us know what you think um, about any one of these uh, these topics. Um, and we would love to hear from you. Um, some 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 conflicts and violence and wars uh, which are taking place in each continent or, or region of the world. Well, we've we've spoken to our guests and they've uh, mentioned a few as well. If we go through Africa, there's a civil a civil war in uh, South Sudan, Sudan stemming from political and ethnic tensions. The civil war in South Sudan has resulted in widespread violence, displacement, and humanitarian crisis as well. We've seen the conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, uh, we've seen the on going violence in Somalia, the conflict in Libya as well. If we go to Asia, there's the war in Afghanistan. Uh, the conflict in Afghanistan involves the Afghan government, Taliban insurgents and the international forces, resulting in widespread violence, terrorism and humanitarian crisis. Of course, we have Israel and Hamas. Uh, conflict has once again escalated to extreme levels since October 7th, with more than uh, 29,000 Palestinian deaths, including dozens of journalists and paramedics amongst the victims as well. We've got the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, uh, the conflict in Yemen, ongoing conflicts in Syria as well. Um, uh, Europe, uh, the war in Ukraine, we've touched on that as well, the Donbass conflict, uh, the conflict in eastern Ukraine. Uh, began in 2014 after Russia's annexation of uh, Crimea. Uh, it uh, involves Ukrainian government forces fighting against uh, separatist uh, groups supported by Russia. The root causes include historical tensions between Ukraine and Russia, ethnic and uh, linguistic divisions and geopolitical struggles as well. Um, we've got the uh, separatist movements in Spain, for example, Catalonia, uh, the ethnic tensions in the Balkans as well, uh, which include countries like Bosnia, uh, Kosovo, Serbia. They have a history of ethnic and religious tensions stemming from the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Um, issues such as territorial disputes, ethnic nationalism and unresolved conflicts continue to fuel tensions in the regions as well. Um, we're going to be speaking to our last guest for this uh, segment. 
Um, we do have with us on the line Dr. Roger McGinty, uh, who is a professor at the School of uh, Government and has uh, uh, and international affairs at Durham University. He has uh, written extensively on peace and conflict. Uh, is the founding editor of the academic journal Peace Building as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on. You're very welcome, and thank you for being with us today. Um, just getting straight into the questions, really. What what uh, challenges do you think would arise in upholding international humanitarian rights during a global war? Uh, well, the whole point of war, in many ways, is to override international humanitarian law. That is an express purpose, often to displace people, obviously to to kill people. Um, many of them non-combatants. In terms of the chief obstacle, well, you have to look to see who would uphold international humanitarian law, and that is the job of institutions, international institutions, and the states behind them. These institutions do not operate autonomously. They rely on states to fund them and to give them governance. So we really have to look at the UN system and realize that that system is a system that dates from 1945 and it reflects the world in 1945. And we've got a crazy situation in which we've got five permanent members of the Security Council and those include Britain and France, but they don't include India or Brazil or Nigeria or many other states which are regional powers. And we also have to realize that Leading states have worked very hard to sideline the United Nations over the past few decades. I mean, most of us would stumble and take a few seconds to remember the name of the UN Secretary General. Uh, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. We knew the name of the Secretary General. They were a a public person. So, in a sense, it's not the UN's fault um, that it has a reasonably low profile. It's actually the fault of the states who, who are the members of the UN. Um, So, you know, in a sense, international humanitarian law is only as strong as those who want to uphold it and only as strong as those who want to enforce it. And what we see at the moment is a, a move away from multilateralism, that is states acting in concert for the common good, and a fairly prominent assertion of national, individual national sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in in your research, you, you mentioned a concept of conflict disruption. Um, can you explain to our listeners what this is and its impact on peace and conflict as well, please? Well, conflict disruption, in, in my mind, acts very much at the level of the individual or the community or the family. And it is in a sense, disrupting the narrative or the stance or the movement towards conflict. And it really is about those small acts of resistance and indeed small acts of kindness. You know, many societies are divided or they have tensions and they have multiple um, people with, with who identify in different ways, different nationalities, different religions. And of course, there might be tension or misunderstanding. And conflict disruption is a way of individuals and families and communities of really disagreeing with the 
dominant narrative in that society. You know, in some societies, the dominant narrative is one of hatred or suspicion towards minorities or, you know, what social psychologists would call the outgroup. And conflict disruption is simply people not taking that, not agreeing with that, saying, actually, you know, these people who live opposite me or they live on the other side of the street, they may be of a different color or they may be a different religion, but they're the same as me. They're my friends. I can collaborate with them. And we can see this in in trade and in culture up and down this country, but also in many other societies that are deeply divided. I'm, I'm thinking of places like Nigeria or the former Yugoslavia, as you've just mentioned. And it, it really is these small acts of kindness, these small acts of solidarity, of reciprocity, and recognizing the humanity in others. And this takes, sometimes this takes bravery. You know, in, in 1940s Germany, there were a group of students who were called the White Rose Movement. And these students realized that Nazism really was an evil ideology. And they took immense risks to distribute leaflets, to talk to other students, to talk to who they could, um, to warn of the dangers and, and the evilness of, of the Nazi ideology. And that was a, an act of disruption. Now, it didn't change the outcome of the war, but it did civilize those groups that they were in. It was an act of resistance. So that's what conflict disruption is to me. It's protests that we see in Russia, it's people refusing to serve in conscripted armies if they don't believe that that army is acting for the good. And it is everyday friendships between people who might identify differently according to race or religion, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think it's essential what you what you mentioned in regards to our neighbours and seeing that uh, even though people may be of different nationalities or different ethnic backgrounds or religious uh, uh, affiliations that they may have as well, we, at the end of the day, we are all the same. And uh, if we, if we can think about that in our day-to-day lives, on the street that we we live in as well. Um, on, on that road, you'll see so many people of different backgrounds, different different faiths, um, yet you all live together in peace and harmony. And and it's just about extrapolating that and, and thinking about that on a, on a wider and larger scale. Um, and then we, we we as different nations and different continents will be able to to get get along in a far better way as well. Um, to what extent do you think emerging technologies such as cyber warfare or AI influence the risk of a uh, world war as well? Well, the if you think about it, the story of Conflict and war has always been the story of technology. We've moved from throwing rocks at one another to throwing spears through to guns and and rockets. Mm. And in many ways, um, AI is a logical extension of the acceleration of of warfare. It's already there. The danger with Uh, AI, however, is that it takes human beings and human rationality and indeed uh, a discrimination between combatants and non-combatants out of the equation. AI is already there and it has been used, for example, in the kill chain 
uh, in Afghanistan where the U.S. were tracking people and and killing them um, using drones. So in many ways it is there. The big danger, however, is that it is involved in nuclear weapons. Uh, Obviously those uh, are an existential threat to us all. And the danger, of course, is that there is no break. There is no one to say, hang on, maybe you know, maybe there is a way out of this. Maybe if we delay, there is a way that negotiations or some other form of conflict um, resolution can take place. There's a danger that the machine takes over. And much conflict is actually about miscommunication. It's about misreading signals. It's about misreading the intent of the other and then escalating. And the danger, of course, is that AI and other forms of technology misinterpret the signals and they do um, cause some sort of incident and then following that incident, which might involve one state's weapons attacking another, um, then there is retaliation and unfortunately there could be escalation after that. So what that really means is that citizens and states and international institutions have to work hard and actually be quite loud on the governance of new technologies. Mm. Mm. Uh, a very interesting take on that as well. I mean, it, it is uh, it is essential for us to to be mindful of the things uh, that that we do. Obviously, everything does have uh, an, an an effect as well um, that that we do. Um, Thank you for, for for being with us, sharing your insight uh, um, with, with our, our with our listeners as well. A uh, very uh, interesting conversation and discussion in this regard. A very important topic, um, which uh, we should all be very uh, uh, alert and attentive towards as well. Especially seeing as what's happening around the world today. Uh, so again, thank you. Uh, peace be upon you, and we hope you have a wonderful week ahead as well. Thank you. Same to you and your listeners. Thank you. Thank Goodbye. You. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Dr. Roger McGinty, who is a professor at the School of Government um, and the and International Affairs at Durham University. He has written extensively on peace and conflict and is the founding editor of the academic journal Peace Building, uh, sharing his thoughts with us. Some very interesting um, things that he mentioned in this regard, things uh, that we should take into account as well. Um, for peace and stability uh, around the world. Um, Just coming towards the end of this uh, first segment, before we move on and speak about organ donations as well, um, if you would like to contribute to this discussion um, or the the next one, then by all means you can do so. The number for you as always is 0208-687-7878 and you can hit us up on our socials on X and on uh, Instagram um, at Voice of Islam UK. Um, just quickly, I did want to mention actually this uh, that uh, on the 6th of October 2015, and I mean, we're so fortunate that uh, within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we have this system of successorship, of uh, khilafat, and the khulafa, the successors of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the second coming of Jesus, um, as we believe, is uh, his successors have always, and him himself, have always guided the Ahmadi Muslims and people from throughout the world, um, whether they have uh, religious affiliations or not, that uh, what we can do 
to achieve world peace as well. Um, I mean, giving the example of 6th of October 2015, while addressing the Dutch National Parliament, His Holiness Hazim Riza Masoor Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, the fifth and current uh, successor um, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he stated, and I quote, the world stands in desperate need of peace and security. This is the urgent issue of our time. All nations and all peoples must come together for the greater good and unite in their efforts to stop all forms of cruelty, persecution and injustice perpetrated in the name of religion or in any other way. Then a couple of months later, in November, uh, again in 2015, while addressing a special reception held at the Hilton Hotel um, in Tokyo, um, His Holiness, um, may Allah strengthen his hand, said that we are, and I quote, we are living in extremely precarious and dangerous times in which the state of the world is a cause of huge concern. Conflict and disorder are consuming the world and threatening international peace and security. In Eastern Europe, hostilities between Russia and Ukraine and other European countries are continuing to flare. Furthermore, recently there has been heightened tensions between the US and China regarding the incursion of an American warship into the South China Sea. Um, and uh, we, we have, uh, um, just uh, before we move on to the next topic as well, um, in uh, 2012, uh, His Holiness, he wrote letters, and he's done this on various occasions, um, whenever uh, he notices and sees, and he's always the first to actually mention these things and, and, uh, as well, um, that whenever there's there's some kind of difficulty or some kind of tensions which are escalating throughout the world, he would write to, to world leaders and, and, and countries and nations as well. And uh, in 2012, he, he did the same as well, and he called their attention towards the establishment of peace. In his letter to the then US President Barack Obama, his Holiness, uh, his, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, he wrote, and I quote, um, If in the smaller countries conflicts cannot be resolved through politics or diplomacy, it will lead to new blocks and groupings to form in the world. This will be the precursor of, for the outbreak of a third world war. Hence, I believe that now, rather than focusing on the progress of the world, it is more important and indeed essential that we urgently increase our efforts to save the world from this destruction. There is an urgent need for mankind to recognize its one God, who is our creator, and this is the only guarantor for the survival of humanity. Otherwise, the world will continue to rapidly head towards self-destruction. Um, <clears throat> sorry. And with that, uh, we'll be moving on to our second topic for the day. If you are just tuning in, then we were discussing um, our first topic, which was global conflicts of today. And the question that we were asking is, uh, Was are we dangerously close to another world war? Um, and now we're going to be speaking about organ donations, a gift of life and uh, I mean according to NHS blood and transplant it has been reported that over a thousand individuals in the UK have anonymously donated a kidney to a stranger on the transplant waiting list as living donors since the legal change permitting this practice in 2006. Uh, in Islam 
We know that organ donation is not only permissible but greatly encouraged as well and is an important area to touch on given the increased demand of organ donations as well. Um, God willing, we will try to get uh, uh, into the definition of organ donation, some quick statistics, uh, in what ways uh, does organ donation align with Islamic values uh, of befitting others and doing good, um, the main concerns raised uh, uh, about organ donations uh, and speaking about uh, um, the outcome and the positive things from that as well. But before we get into all of that, uh, we do have with us on the line our first guest for this segment, Dr. Frank Dorr, uh, who is the head of transplantations, trans- transplant consultant and general and dialysis access surgeon at Hammersmith Hospital. He is a council member of the British Transplantation Society and president of the thematic federation, Equality, Diversity and Inclusivity of the UEMs. Assalamu peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us. Getting straight into the questions, uh, like I mentioned uh, just now, in the UK, recently the 1,000th uh, non-directed uh, live uh, kidney donation happened. Why is this so special? Yeah, thank you. I mean, this type of donation where people, as you said, anonymously uh, out of altruistic motivations donate a kidney is special because it is the most sort of endogenous, sort of most driven and non-forced type of donation. Um, and actually, it's not a donation only for one recipient because nowadays uh, these type of donors donate uh, quite often into a chain of transplants with people that are uh, that have a live donor but are incompatible and cannot have a transplant directly from their intended donor um, and also at the end of such a chain um, we we see that also a patient from the waiting list receives the last kidney of the chain and that patient on the waiting list is often a person who doesn't have a live donor option and is often quite complex so one donation can enable multiple transplants, and this is what we have seen, and this is why it is so extremely beautiful. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Um, and uh, it, it just goes to show that people, there are still good people in the world, right? That that people are willing to do something for to benefit others. They might not even know them. And in this case, obviously, they don't know them. It's complete strangers, isn't it? So it's just a, yeah. it's just a beautiful reminder that there is still good in the world, right? Yes, and I feel an extremely privileged person because I do see a lot of that uh, good in the world uh, by people who donate organs either as a live donor but also, of course, after they have passed away uh, as a deceased donor. So this is, this is, this is really positive. And with all, the, with all the troubles going on in the world that you were alluding to earlier, I think this is uh, a good positive uh, aspect to highlight. Oh, definitely, definitely. I couldn't agree more. Um, if for the benefit of our listeners, what are some of the advantages of uh, living kidney donation? Yeah, there are many. Um, the uh, first of all, the living donors, of course, get tested quite vigorously before they. We know for sure that they can live with one kidney safely mm-hmm. and have a normal life and a normal quality of life. Um, but kidneys um, from living donors are of higher quality. Uh, because the people have been tested to be healthy. Mm. And of course, that is a difference between a person who just died. Um, So these kidneys are fresh. 
uh, they are transplanted almost immediately after they have been um, taken out from the donor. And uh, they enable so many more options because you can plan the operation. Um, and this is, of course, very different from, from people that donate their organs after they're, they're, they pass away. Um, these, these operations can be planned. So what can actually be happening is that a, a, a kidney patient uh, can avoid dialysis completely. And dialysis uh, keeps people alive, but also isn't good for you. Mm-hmm. And people on dialysis have a significant uh, chance to die every year. Um, quite often a higher chance to die than many uh, types of cancers these days. Yeah. So if you can avoid dialysis and if you can have a kidney from the best possible quality, uh, that's obviously an advantage. And we were talking about these chains of transplants before. Um, sometimes we can just exchange uh, a pair of kidneys between two donors and two recipients because they are not compatible with each other. But if you change the kidney and donate the kidney to the other recipient, basically all of a sudden they are compatible. Mm-hmm. So those are things you can do when there is a living donor option for people. Yeah, very very interesting. You, you mentioned that there's uh, vigorous checks and uh, that ensures that you, you, you have good, healthy uh, kidneys which uh, which can be donated from, from one person to another. Um, can yeah. anyone be a living uh, kidney donor? In principle, yes. Um, if a person is uh, above 18 years old, mm-hmm. um, is not paid or coerced or forced to do it, yeah. uh, those are very important parts of donation, obviously. Um, and if they're healthy enough, they can uh, definitely um, be considered as donors. But of course, we establish first if that person can safely live with one kidney for the rest of their life. And that in- entails quite a lot of blood tests, uh, urine tests, some scans. Um, we normally try to fit that in in one day, uh, but there will be several appointments in the hospital, several discussions, of course, about of course, about their motivations and whether they really want to do this by themselves. And um, then after all that, normally it takes a couple of months, um, the donation could proceed. But of course, we have to also disappoint people because Mm -hmm. we find that the kidney function isn't that good. Some people turn out to have one kidney only, and of course, then you can't donate your single kidney. Um, And sometimes you find other health issues that then at least can be addressed for these uh, potential donors. Mm -hmm. But but uh, is it something that I mean I, I just want our listener to have uh, have a good picture that uh, they they are able to go and uh, obviously not being forced or anything like that or, or paid or, or coerced into it like you mentioned but uh, they 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 can go and they would have a good uh, chance of of being selected to 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 donate their their kidney as well is it something that because I, I in in the minds of some people it might be that oh I'm not healthy enough or um, maybe I'm a little bit overweight or some something like this or have this other yeah. health implication that maybe it, it might not be accepted is that the case well uh, not in, in principle everyone can be considered unless there is a recent cancer for example or people have uh, a recent infection of certain viruses mm-hmm. um, but that's something we you can always check with uh, a transplant center in your area yeah. um, so that we can assess with uh, the potential donor if if this is all possible or um, whether we can just do the tests. And even if we do the test, of course, there is a chance that it's not possible to do, but mm-hmm. everyone can be considered. 
And if there's um, someone they know or they want to donate uh, altruistically in an anonymous way, everyone can contact um, a, a live donor coordinator, a specialized nurse in every transplant center. And NHS Blood and Transplant has contact details for all the transplant units in the UK um, for people to contact uh, them in case they want to inquire about the option of donating the kidney. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and just lastly there, in you, you mentioned in the beginning as well that you, you feel uh, privileged that you get to see so many of these, these, these good um, acts of kindness uh, which take place. In your long time working in this field, what is maybe one personal story that has touched you the most? Yeah, this is a very difficult question um, <laughs> because there's so many examples yeah. of, of beautiful stories. Um, I've seen ex-partners donate to ex-partners because they have children together. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen children donating to parents, parents to children, grandparents to grandchildren. Uh, I've seen it all. Um, but I think the most special experience I had was with a, a, a group of people that were actually, when I was still in the Netherlands, that's where I'm from, mm-hmm. um, that have had a condition um, and they knew they were going to die in the next few months. And they still were very persisting in the wish to donate a kidney whilst they were still alive. Mm. And some of them actually could. Um, and this, again, was an anonymous uh, type of donation that we just discussed uh, this morning, um, where people actually found comfort in the fact that they could have helped one or even multiple people with their donation and knowing that that would be one of the last good things they could do in their life. Mm. I mean, it's it's it, this is I mean, it's a, a very Islamic way of thinking as well, in which we we think yeah. that uh, there, there's obviously a type of charity that you can give within your life, which will be beneficial and people will re- uh, benefit uh, from that. Uh, but there's also a term which is called in in Arabic sadqai jariya, which is a a continuating uh, a continuation of of charity, which even after your demise, after you pass away, mm-hmm. it, there's some kind of charity, and that is like, for instance, it can be like this. Uh, in which you're giving an organ, or it could be that you 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 make a, a fountain or something like that that yeah. uh, people can t- take and get b- uh, water from and and things like that. So it's just it's a very beautiful uh, example that you've shared as well, um, in which people want to do good uh, even at the at the at the step at the at the door of uh, the, their own demise as well. But yet, obviously, that 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 love of uh, of assisting and helping others uh, that is something which is instilled within all of us and and uh, it's just a friendly reminder for everyone as well to just do good um, and it's never too late to, to 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 do good as well absolutely fully agree thank you um dr frank door thank you for for being with us some some wonder, wonderful examples and and share, sharing your insight uh into this uh, very important uh, topic as well thank you once again and we hope you have a pleasant uh day and week ahead as well peace be upon you same to you thank you so much you're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Dr. Frank Dorr, uh, the head of transplantation, transplant consultant and general di- uh, and dialysis uh, access surgeon at Hammersmith Hospital. He is a council member of the British uh, Transplantation Society and president of the Thematic Federation, Equality, Diversity and Inclusivity of the UEMS. He was sharing his thoughts with us. Um <clears throat> 
Um, obviously, something which uh, you you would be aware of, but uh, just a quick definition of organ donation. Uh, this is when an organ is uh, given to someone else in need of tra- of a transplant to save or enhance that individual's life. The most common transplants involve kidneys, which we're talking about today, hearts, livers, and lungs. Um, organ and tissue donation is largely from individuals who have died. However, people can come forward to donate certain organs as well, including kidneys and uh, and parts of a liver as a living donor. Um, according to the statistics for 2022-2023, there were 1,429 deceased donors that year and 958 living donors, uh, which is around a 60-40 split. The NHS estimates that only um, around 1 in 100 people die in circumstances such as uh, in hospital emergency or intensive care units that would make them a viable donor. Um, and 7,352 people are waiting for a transplant in the UK alone. So it just goes to show um, how much of a need there is um, for um, or organ donation um, and the importance of it as well. Um, just a quick uh, narration that I'd, uh, that uh, uh, comes to mind from the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is that he, he mentioned that I am with the weak because aiding the weak and poor is the means of reaching Allah the Almighty. Um, so just uh, we, we were just speaking about this with with our previous guest as well, um, <clears throat> Dr. Frank Dore, that uh, it's it's a it's a charitable act which uh, which would most certainly uh, help that individual. Like I mentioned, this is something which can enhance or even save someone's life. So you're 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 doing such a great a great thing, and uh, this is actually. Um, um, a, a, there's a verse of the Holy Quran in which it says that if you are to save one person, uh, the life of one person, then it as if you have saved the whole of humanity. And if you have killed one person, then it is akin to killing the whole of humanity as well. So it just goes to show the importance of the sanctity of human life. Um, and that is why it's so essential that we, we do whatever we can and whatever is in our capacity to help and assist others as well. Uh, going to our next guest for the segment, Professor Gurch Randawa, uh, who is a professor of diversity and public health and director of the Institute for Health Research at uh, the University of Bedfordshire and director of the UK Organ Donation and Transplant Research Centre. His 30-year research career has focused on the development of patient-centred care in kidney disease, transplantation and end-of-life care amongst diverse communities. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Uh, Walaikum salam and thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for being with us. Um, we're talking about uh, a very important topic, obviously something which is very uh, dear to you as an individual as well. Um, and th- the first question that I wanted to ask you was, uh, why does ethnic- ethnicity matter when it comes to organ donation? And why do uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic patients often have to wait significantly longer for a successful match than uh, than white patients? So organ failure um, is normally uh, related, as you've already highlighted, to organs such as the heart, kidney, uh, lungs, pancreas, etc., liver. 
Um, and many of these conditions um, are impacted by a, a combination of genetics, but also diet and lifestyle. So um, as a public health professor, one of the things I would say is we need to remember that many of these uh, conditions that lead to organ failure are actually preventable and manageable. So I would encourage all of your listeners to look after their health and well-being. You know, think about your diet, think about your lifestyle, everything in moderation. Um, that would be my first point. Um, then if we look at the data, um, what we see in the UK, so unfortunately our South Asian and African and Caribbean communities are overrepresented on transplant waiting lists. Um, so nearly one in three people waiting for a transplant are from a non-white background. So we're nearly three times overrepresented on the waiting list because of these high rates of organ failure, which, as I said, we need to manage mm-hmm. through uh, better lifestyle um, and also, you know, uh, accessing health care support much earlier. Then in terms of why people wait longer, organs are matched on a, a combination of tissue type and blood group. Um, And because there are, at the moment, much less donors coming from our South Asian and African Caribbean communities, it's far more difficult to match organs. So what we find is uh, non-white patients wait a lot longer. So there's two ways to solve this. One is, in the longer term, we need to reduce the need for organ transplantation, which, as I said, is a public health issue. And in the short term, we also need to increase the number of organ donors coming forward from our community, either as living kidney donors or as donors um, after the time of death. And that's what um, I'd be very keen for all of us to think about. Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. I couldn't agree more. Um your book, Organ Donation in Islam, the interplay of uh, jurisprudence, ethics and society, explores why some Muslim communities remain hesitant towards the idea of donation. Um, how do you think um, religious and cultural beliefs have influenced such attitudes and how can this problem be tackled as well? So firstly, um, and I think it's important to understand the book, is a collective effort. So, you know, um, amazing co-editors, Madhya Jaffa from the Almadi Institute, Asim Padela from the US, and then a, a range of amazing scholars, policymakers, clinicians have all contributed chapters to the book. And that's precisely why the book is required, because all of us, um, listen and take advice from different people mm. and what, what our research has shown again and again and again is that we do need these different voices giving advice and this is the first book that we're aware of that has brought together uh, jur- Islamic jurists, academics, uh, policymakers, um, as well as patients um, to talk about Sunni and Shia perspectives. And essentially what the book is showing is that there are a multiple range of positions, like on many issues, on the topic of organ donation. And what we want is for people to make informed decisions and the decision that is right for them and their family. So we hope that the book will serve as a tool for people to discuss organ donation within their community, within their family, amongst their friend circle, but to have an informed debate about the different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 very interesting that you say that as well. I mean, as we know, um, Islam actually 
and 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 faiths they they actually um they 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 tell us and they advise us um and tell us the benefits um of things uh, of these charitable acts like organ donation and it is something which is very much not just permissible but uh, um encouraged within Islam as well so it's uh, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see that maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with this as well and that's why it's essential for us to like you said um we will take advice and and guidance from 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 different categories of people uh, it could be academics it could be professionals it could be doctors it could be whatever uh, jurists um and so it's a, it's 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 a wonderful thing that you've done in which you've uh, put all of these together um in your book as well um some people strongly oppose the newly introduced opt-out system um arguing that presumed consent is less valid and unethical um what's your opinion uh, on this new policy so i think firstly to declare i was on the organ donation task force many years ago and we actually recommended not introducing the opt-out system so mm-hmm. i think it's important that i say that um but also you know we are where we are and i think it's important to remember that on the current register you can either choose to opt in or opt out so i think that's still important and mm-hmm. i think what what's required and what all the research shows across the world if you take spain for example which are the world leaders on organ donation rates they have opt out but it's not opt out that's the key difference it's the fact that as a country as a society organ donation as an act is very visible so if you look at their media you look amongst their community donors are very visible in the uh, stories whereas if you look at this country you rarely hear about donor stories either living kidney donors or donors who've you know gone on to save up to nine lives at the time of death mm-hmm. and i think that it is the key thing that we need to do we need to really bring to uh, the fore um the noble act of either living donation or donation after death so that people see people who look like them and sound like them who've gone on to do that and therefore we normalize that act and therefore we're far more likely to discuss it i think the opt out or opt in isn't the issue the issue is we don't as a country really have much attention focused on the act of organ donation hmm and and what do you think maybe we can change um to to have that sort of attention of people towards this so firstly you know thank you for your leadership for having this topic on your show i think that's fantastic that's a great change um if i may be so humble and bold to suggest maybe if we did this program again in the future we should have a donor on either a a living donor or a donor family who've lost someone but has gone on to save lives so we can actually hear those experiences of people who've gone through the process mm. and i think if every broadcaster if every community group and indeed there are some amazing projects going on at the moment for example the british islam medical association the muslim women's network they're doing some fantastic work in really giving a spotlight to the act of donation showcasing living donors showcasing donor families um, and i think that's what we need to do as a, as a country as a society as a community mm-hmm. 
Most certainly, most certainly. Um, thank you uh, for, for for being with us, uh, Professor Randawa, and uh, sharing your your thoughts with us. Uh, a, a very good suggestion as well. I mean, we we have spoken about this in the past as well, but uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe we can do that uh, in in the future as well, in which we have donors on uh, and speak about their 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 experience um, as well. Um, so yeah, like I said, thank you. Um, we we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well, and uh, pleasant week uh, ahead of you thank you so much for having me on and uh, it's wonderful that you've showcased this really important topic on behalf of the community thank you thank you peace be upon you um, that was Professor Gurcharandawa, um, like I mentioned earlier, is a Professor of Diversity in Public Health and Director of the Institute uh, for Health Research at the University of Bedfordshire and Director of the UK Organ Donation and Transplant Research Centre. His uh, 30-year research uh, ha- career has focused on the development of patient-centred care in kidney disease, transplantation and end-of-life care amongst diverse communities, sharing some uh, very interesting uh, uh, thoughts uh, with us um, <clears throat> and uh, some some good uh, uh, examples uh, as well um, in what ways uh, does organ donation align with the Islamic value of be- benefiting others and doing good well we've touched on this uh, earlier but uh, we, sh- we we should mention like I um, uh, uh, and, and re- repeat and shadow uh, what we mentioned earlier and, th- and that is that organ donation is not only permissible in Islam but it is greatly encouraged service to mankind is the essence of Islam and therefore any act of beneficence is always promoted Organ donation falls into this category because it serves to decrease human suffering and save lives and thereby upholds the Islamic value of doing goodness to others. In addressing Muslims, the Holy Quran states, and this is recorded in chapter 3, verse 111, and that is that you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you have been raised to serve others. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. And this reveals actually the purpose of a Muslim's life is to in fact serve fellow human beings and contribute in any way possible towards the betterment of all people. And uh, of course in another place uh, within the Holy Quran we see chapter 2 verse 238 and this is something which is echoed throughout the verses of the Holy Quran and that is that he states that and do not forget to do good to one another. A very simple and succinct verse of the Holy Quran but it, it encapsulates so much uh, something which we often forget and we're in this world where we're only worrying and caring about me, myself and I. It is just a friendly reminder for us that we should always be looking out for others as well looking at how we can serve humanity, how we can serve mankind as well. Uh, we do have with us on the line our last guest for the show, Paul Dixon, who is uh, an organ donation ambassador for the Northwest NHS Blood and Transplant. His main role is to promote and raise awareness of organ donation, and he has also had the privilege of being a living donor by donating his kidney as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about my uh, experiences. 
Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, I mean, this this is something which uh, our previous uh, guest uh, wanted as well, to have a living uh, uh, donor sharing their thoughts uh, with us as well. So it's excellent to have you on uh, and to speak about your experience as well and raise awareness to our listeners in which uh, they can hear firsthand what it means to be a living donor, donor and how it can help others as well. And the first question that I wanted to ask you naturally would be, what sparked your decision to become a living donor and especially um, what motivated you as well? Well, um, I'd always been on the organ donor register from the 1970s uh, and I worked in a car factory all my life and the blood transfusion service, as it was called then, used to come twice a year and everyone used to uh, give blood because uh, there was benefits you got half an hour off work and you got biscuits and sandwiches and tea <laughs> <laughs> and you got paid so Wonderful. so it was a win-win yeah. um, and i'd always carried my card and be happy to uh, donate my organs in the event of my uh, death but i didn't know anything uh, at all about living donation but that changed for me early in the year 2012 when i was listening well i was watching uh, the last few minutes of a program, my wife was actually watching it. I caught the last few minutes, and there was a gentleman called Richard Pittman, mm-hmm. who's um, a retired uh, jockey, quite famous, and he was telling his story about how he donated one of his kidneys to a total stranger. And I was quite taken back. I thought, oh, I didn't know he could do that. And then I suddenly had the thought, well, perhaps I could do that, because I've always enjoyed exceptionally good health. Um, very, very lucky never been out of work, I've got a nice house, mm. got a good pension, so I've always felt myself very, very lucky, and I thought, well, perhaps I can give somebody else uh, the benefit of my good um, good health. So it made me uh, look into it more. I looked online, and uh, I ended up phoning my local hospital, which is the Transplant Centre for Kidneys, and they sent me a pile of literature. Um, I read that and contacted them again and went over the following week uh, for an interview and during that interview they explained all the ins and outs of what you'd have to go through um, and all the tests you'd have to have to ensure that you could live a, a normal life with just one kidney so at the end of that I decided to give it a go and the first thing they do they send you for an x-ray because if you haven't got two kidneys you're wasting the time <laughs> so so luckily I had two um, and uh, that started the series of tests and the test actually took uh, just over a year. They test you for just about everything known to man. And that's to make sure that you, you, you won't have any problems later on in life because you'll only have one kidney. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's beautiful, isn't it? In which, uh, I mean, it's, it just shows how, how, how much of a change an individual can make um, for, for for someone they 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 might not even know. I mean, like you mentioned, the example that you gave as well, um, of a of a famous individual, um, donating a kidney, uh, to to a complete stranger. And this is something which our previous guest mentioned as well. That for instance, in Spain, it's something um which is a, a lot more public, a lot more known to to the public as well. Um, in which people people are uh, donating organs as well over here, maybe, or and in other 
countries, maybe it's not uh, publicized so much. Maybe it's not, um, um, pe- people are not aware of it so much as well. For instance, I- even in your case, um, you-, you didn't know that you were able to do it uh, as a-, 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 a living donor. Um, <laughs> but so, true. yeah, it's it's essential that we-, we hear these discussions and we hear these conversations and we promote it more as well so that more and more people are aware of the fact that this is something that they can actually do. Um, right. You're, of course, re- retired now. However, you work as an ambassador for organ donation. C- can you share w- with our listeners what this uh, what this actually involves, please? Yeah, my, um, my ambassador role, basically, I got into that after being a volunteer in my two local hospitals because uh, after donation, um, after my donation, I became um, a volunteer in my two local hospitals and I was pro- uh, actively uh, promoting the organ donation register Uh, to people on a daily basis. So I did one full day in each hospital each week. And in over five years, I happened to sign over 14,000 people to the organ donor register. So so the register means that when you go on and put your your details in that, and you can have a choice of what organs, if any, or all of them, or, or tissue, that you can choose to donate. And that goes on a database, and that's in every hospital in the UK. And that's the database that the health professionals will consult. If you die in hospital, uh, they will look to see if you've registered to be an organ donor. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, and, and just uh, lastly there, what would you say to encourage others to, to sign up to, to become a, a living donor? So I know this is, this is what you do anyway. So, I mean, we'll just give you that platform in which you can speak to, to a wider audience um, in, in which why, why youth feel it's, uh, it's so essential uh, to, for, for people to do this. Well, I think it's, uh, it's very important because um, at the minute there's nearly 7,500 people uh, on the active waiting list for an organ uh, and over five and a half thousand of those people are waiting for their kidney. Um, and on average, someone dies every day waiting because there's not enough organs available for the transplants. So in the hospital, I have a sign on my uh, on my uh, trolley, and it says, when you die, your organs will either go to the grave, the crematorium, uh, or a human in desperate need. Mm. You decide. And I think that... It's a bit harsh, but it, it sums up exactly where we're at. We yeah, can decide what we want to do with our organs after we die. And it's very easy. You can just go online, uh, organdonation.nhs.uk, uh, or make a phone call, 0300-123-2323, and register to be a donor. Or you can register not to be a donor. Um, you can nominate someone else to make a decision for you, for example, a friend, a GP, a faith leader. Um, but it is important, once you've done any of these steps, to tell your family, because your family will always have the last word. It's important you tell them what your decision is, and then they will perhaps honour it. You're hoping that's what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, thank you uh, for, 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 for being with us, uh, Paul, and sharing your, your thoughts and your stories uh, with us and our listeners as well. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. And, and I'm sure uh, our listeners would have, uh, would have um, um, taken a, a keen interest into this and maybe a bit more uh, open to, to, this, uh, to this fact now as well, that this is something that they can do as living donors or even uh, donors uh, after their, 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 their demise as well. So thank you again. Uh, We hope you you have a pleasant uh, week ahead. Peace be upon you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Bye-bye.
Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Paul Dixon, uh, who is an organ donation ambassador for the Northwest NHS Blood and Transplant. His main role is to promote and raise awareness of organ donation, and he has also had the privilege of being a living donor by donating his kidney as well. Um, we're just going to quickly uh, listen to a, a, a short uh, clip of uh, an episode of Faith Matters, um, questions uh, about organ donation. An individual asked the following qu- uh, questions to the panel on, on Faith Matters of what is Islam's view on organ donation after death and is it not like a mutilation of the body which is forbidden in Islam? So let us listen to the answers to that. As far as Islam is concerned, um, not only does it permit to do something like this, but if you will read the Holy Quran, you will find that a lot of encouragement is present um, in the Holy Quran with regards to serving humanity as a whole. Um, the Holy Quran says that with regards to the Muslims that Kuntum khaira ummatin ukhrijat linnas that you are the best of the people, Kuntum khaira ummatin and then the reason for why a nation can be deemed the best of people is ukhrijat linnas because they have been raised for the betterment of mankind. And the Holy Prophet used to say that that a true leader is he who serves his nation. So we see that Islam teaches us that we should do anything and everything in our, in our capacity to help mankind and to help fellow beings. And um, the Holy Quran also goes on to state that that never can you attain true righteousness until you spend out of that which is most beloved to you. Mm -hmm. And what is more beloved to us than our own bodies, than our own souls? So if somebody wishes to donate his organs, that's a very commendable deed and the Holy Quran encourages that. And then also, with this question as to whether it's equivalent to mutilation of the dead body, um, mutilation is something quite different. In the Arab society 14-1500 years ago, we used to find that this was a manner in which they would degrade people. They would chop off their nose or their ears and deform the body physically. But we see now that when organ donation takes place, the health authorities which are responsible for extracting these organs, they do it in a very nice manner and the body, yeah, the, the body is not um, ruined, uh, so to speak. Um, so if somebody has this desire, then indeed there is ample proof in the Holy Quran and in Islam as a whole that we should do anything in our possible to serve. And think about it. The Holy Quran has said that a person who saves one life it is as if he has saved the whole of humanity. So a person who donates a couple of organs and he becomes the source of saving a couple of people, imagine how many humanities he has saved based on the Holy Quran. That was uh, an answer from uh, Faith Matters uh, in regards to this topic that we are discussing. And it beautifully sums up how important it is uh, for us to get involved in this as well and and the blessings that we'll reap from doing so as well. Uh, This does bring us to an end for today's show. Uh, We spoke about world war and uh, organ donations and just the gift of life as well. That's all the time that we have for today. Here's the news.